Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, it's Amit Goyal. Welcome back to another phenomenal CNCR, where we get to dive into an incredible discussion about a fascinating case, this time, and for the very first time, with Cardio Nerds colleagues from the University of Chicago. With the release of this episode, we proudly welcome the University of Chicago to join the Cardio Nerds Healy Honor Roll of fellowship programs who support our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. And we are so grateful to have Dr. Sherlyn Abobi represent the program as the Cardio Nerds Ambassador. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Speaker disclosures are always available in the episode description. There is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. And be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. And now, let's get nerdy! Hey everyone, welcome back. We are so excited for this case. We are joined by excellent colleagues, friends, co-fellows from the University of Chicago Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. We have with us Drs. Ian Hackett, Mark Belkin, and Sherlene Abobi. And actually, I lied. I said we have co-fellows with us, but Sherlene, you are a third-year resident, and congratulations, you just matched, and you'll be staying at University of Chicago. That's correct. Thank you so much, and I'm very excited to get started. So excited to have you on. But before we get started, would you all mind just introducing yourselves for our listeners? Sure, I'll start. My name is Ian, originally from the Chicago suburbs. I did my undergraduate at St. Louis University, which is also where I did medical school. And then I did my internal medicine residency out in Salt Lake City at the University of Utah. Wanted to come back home to Chicago, missed the lake and came back to University of Chicago. And I'm interested in non-invasive cardiology moving forward, preferably in an academic setting and planning to get bordered in CT, nuclear and echocardiography. Excited to be here. Thank you so much for putting this together. I'm Mark. I'm also originally from the Chicago suburbs. I left for undergrad and went down to Tulane University for my undergraduate degree. I came back to the city to go to Rush Medical College for medical school and then came over to the University of Chicago for my internal medicine residency. I was excited to stay on for a fellowship there. I'm currently a third year general cardiology fellow and I'm going to be staying on one more year for my advanced heart failure and transplant fellowship. Thank you also for having me. I'm very excited to be doing this case. Hi, guys. My name is Charlene. I'm a third-year resident at University of Chicago currently. I moved around a lot, was born in Ghana, but went to medical school at University of Chicago. I'm a current internal medicine resident here, happily to say that I matched at University of Chicago, and so we'll be joining the fellows next year. I'm not quite sure what I'm interested in yet as far as subspecialties, but I am very interested in medical narratives and run a comic platform called Shirley World MD that talks about issues in medicine and disparities through comics. I just have to say before we dive into the case, everyone just has to check out Charlene's comics about Shirley Whirl's experiences and adventures through being a medical student and now probably a resident. There was one I remember when Shirley asked the patient, how was the night? And the patient said it was fine. And then the attending asked the patient and the patient was like, oh, I've had 10 out of 10 chest pain all night. <laughs> and I was like, and she goes, A2, Brute. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta see it. You gotta see it. It's so good. It's so good. I love that you guys can recite my comics. It's so touching. <laughs> I think what makes them beautiful is that they're so relatable, right? We all have these experiences. Yeah, very much so. 
Well, Ian, Mark, Charlene, this is a super, super treat. And congratulating on your match. That's a fantastic, stellar, amazing match. It's going to be amazing. Guys, Chicago, one of my most amazing cities. Take us to one of your favorite places in Chicago to chill so that we can engage in an amazing conversation about cardiology. So I think one of our favorite spots to go to, both the residents and the fellows, is the Promontory Point. This is on the edge of Hyde Park. It's a peninsula that goes into Lake Michigan. It's got a beautiful view of the downtown skyline. There's a bunch of green space, areas to have bonfires, and it's a good place to get together as residents, as fellows, to relax and have a good time outside. And a fun fact is George Lucas got married there. Wait, I just recently binged the entire Star Wars thing with my family. And actually, we're watching Mandalorian. This is not a advertisement. As cardio nerds, it's both about the heart side of things as well as things like loving Star Wars. So Amazing. How about we talk about some cardiology? Sure thing. Let me take you to the University of Chicago cardiology floors. We have a pretty new hospital, so the rooms are quite spacious. And we have a new patient who's just come in from an outside hospital. Her name is MP. She's a 69-year-old woman. She has a past medical history of HEFREF. Her EF is around 40%. She also has hypertension and hyperlipidemia. She has a CRTD in place for unclear reasons, and she's coming in after an ICD shock. So a little bit more about MP. She's been followed by an outside hospital cardiologist for several years. And to everyone's great consternation and no one's surprise, we do not have much in the way of records for her. She started developing dyspnea on exertion about two years ago and was found to have an acute EF drop from 60% to 40%. Getting back to her presenting complaint of uh, ICD shock, she's been having episodes of VT for the last two years and has been shocked multiple times. For the last two weeks, she's been experiencing worsening dyspnea on exertion, chest pressure, and palpitations. She describes experiencing multiple small shocks and states that she came to the hospital after one big shock. As far as the rest of her history goes, she's had no prior surgeries and has no known allergies. Her family history is notable for a father who passed away from an MI in his 60s and a mother and older brother with Parkinson's disease. Her social history, she's a never smoker and only drinks small amounts on holidays and family gatherings. Her occupational history is significant for working as a secretary, never been in a healthcare setting or in a jail. She's on a baby aspirin, furosemide, 40 milligrams daily, metoprolol XL, 100 milligrams BID, almost starting 20 milligrams daily, and she takes tramadol for back pain. When this patient came to our floors, one of the first questions we had was, why does this woman have a device in the first place? According to the patient, she had a syncopal event about four years ago during an exercise stress test, after which she was told that her heart wasn't coordinated. Hearing this made us think that she might have had an arrhythmia of some sort. After this event, she had a dual chamber pacemaker place. She required several lead revisions and eventually had her dual chamber pacemaker replaced with a CRTD. So we're going to assume that the outside hospital docs knew what they were doing or following guidelines when they placed her device. And so to work backwards through this, we decided to turn to those guidelines. Let's talk a little bit about the indications for pacemaker placement. We know that she initially started off with a dual chamber pacemaker. The first question we asked were, what are the indications for pacemaker placement? So class one indications for pacemaker placement are third degree AV block, or in patients who have periods of asystole greater than equal to three seconds. There are a few other criteria that can fit this category. We also put in pacemakers in patients who have second degree AV block with associated symptomatic bradycardia. And in this particular patient, we do have a story that maybe fits that. We have a story from several years ago 
where she was taking this exercise stress test and she syncopized. Using that information, the history and looking to our guidelines, we inferred that maybe she had some kind of AV block during that episode. But the thing is, she no longer has a dual chamber pacemaker. In fact, she gained two things when her device was upgraded. Not only did she get an ICD, so a defibrillator on top of her pacing capability, she also got a CRTD, which adds an additional coronary sinus lead so that she could have synchronization. Going further into this mystery, we had to think about why does she have an AICD? When I think about indications for ICD placement, I think about primary versus secondary prevention. Primary prevention, those are the indications I'm most used to. These are patients who haven't actually had VT yet, and you're really just working to prevent it from happening. These patients are either patients who have had prior MIs greater than or equal to 40 days ago, and EFs less than or equal to 30%. Also, patients who have conditions such as recurrent idiopathic VT and channelopathies like Brugada. And finally, the category that I think I end up hearing the most about when I'm in clinic um, are patients who have class 2 to 3 HEFREF with EFs less than or equal to 35% who already been trialed on guideline-directed medical therapy for greater than or equal to three months. The next group is the secondary prevention group. So this is the group of people who've actually had episodes of VT. And this group includes patients who've had hemodynamically significant VT or survival from cardiac arrest and patients for whom irreversible causes have been excluded, like medications that prolong the QT. It also includes patients who have a history of sustained VT in the presence of structural heart disease or channelopathy. Again, we can turn back to our history and we can see that, okay, this patient's coming to us saying that she's actually been shocked multiple times for VT before. And we know that she's gone to her cardiologist. She's been interrogated and it's been proven to be VT. But still, that doesn't really answer for us why she has a CRTD. We look at those indications and we know that CRTDs are placed in patients who have EFs less than or equal to 30% with QRSs that are greater than or equal to 150 milliseconds with a left bundle branch block morphology, as well as NIA class 2 to 4 symptoms on GDMT. We've all had cases like this before when a patient who's largely been worked up at an outside hospital comes to our service with limited records. <laughs> We've had to put her together as best as we can looking at guidelines, but it's still a little bit unclear why she needed a CRTD. And we still have quite a few questions. And some of those questions were, okay, so why did she need the CRTD upgrade? How often was she pacing? What was her underlying rhythm? So what is the easiest way to figure out the answer to these questions? I think it's actually to go straight to the patient's device. So this point in time, we decided that we were going to interrogate the patient's device, which means we put a sensor over the generator of the patient's device and download the data. We had to think about what sort of device the patient had. So as Shirlene already mentioned, patient had cardiac resynchronization therapy with a defibrillator in place. The important things that I think about when I'm asked to interrogate someone's ICD or someone's pacemaker is, A, what is the brand of the device? It's important to know this. This can be detected sometimes from chest x-ray. The most important reason is that you'll end up running up and down the stairs multiple times to get different sensors if you don't know what the brand of the device is. (laughs) Definitely been there, Ian. Definitely been there. Yeah, literally the biggest pain in the butt when you like wheel lug the whole suitcase there. and like bring It's like bringing the wrong nuclear codes. Yeah, it's absolutely the worst. And you can't bring those things down the stairs because they come on their own cart. It's just quite a headache. It's also important, obviously, check the battery on this thing. Oftentimes, I've, I've been involved in certain cases where the device discharged so frequently that it actually reached the end of life on the battery and switched modes in order to conserve the remaining battery that it had. So we want to know the battery of the device and what's the longevity of that. 
There are several other factors that we look at when we're talking about interrogating a pacemaker ICD. What are things like the impedance on the leads? They're sensing where are the leads positioned. So again, this is something we can obtain from chest x-ray. And in our patient, we know that the patient has three leads. So there's a lead in the right atrium. There's a lead in the right ventricle that also has a defibrillator coil. And as Amit and Trilene eloquently mentioned, the patient has a lead in the coronary sinus, the lateral wall, the LV. And so understanding exactly where these leads are can tell us something about the patient's underlying condition. For example, when we put in something like a dual chamber pacemaker, maybe we're concerned that the patient has complete heart block, or maybe the patient has a history of atrial fibrillation. And so we need a device that's able to detect that the patient's in atrial fibrillation and decide not to pace that. It's also important to see what percentage of the time is someone being paced. So in someone that we put a cardiac resynchronization therapy in, the idea is we want them paced in biventricular fashion 100% of the time, right? That's where the benefit comes from. And that's why we're resynchronizing the patient's heart. In someone with a pacemaker, as I mentioned, mode switches, so did the patient go into atrial fibrillation? Did they go into something like a supraventricular tachycardia, like atrial tachycardia, atrial flutter? Patients with ICDs, such as our patient had, were worried about tachy events. Were there events detected above the set threshold for ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation? Was there treatment delivered? This can either be something called anti-tachycardia pacing, where the device actually senses a tachycardia that's above the range and will overdrive pace, so it'll pace faster than that in order to break the cycle. Was the defibrillator discharged, so did it charge and deliver electric therapies, actually? And that would be suggestive of someone who had perhaps a ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation event. So these are all kind of things that I'm thinking about as I'm walking up to get the wand to interrogate the devices. What chambers are we looking at? What percent of the time is the patient paced? Where is the patient paced? And have they received any therapy such as anti-tachycardia pacing or discharges from their defibrillator? Ian, interrogating an electrical device is such a core skill that I'm still developing as a fellow. But I love the way you gave us the comprehensive evaluation for a device. What are all the parameters that we're looking for? And like with everything else, whether you're looking at a chest x-ray or an EKG, it's good to have a systematic process in how we evaluate and assimilate the data. And at the same time, we should have sort of a hypothesis-driven way for putting that information in clinical context. And so in this case, she's coming in with an ICD shock, right? And so while we're looking through all of the comprehensive data systematically to make sure the device is functioning and what the pacing burden is, we're going to especially pay keen attention to what happened around the time that the patient said, oh, I felt a shock, right? Right now, all we have is a symptom. And so we'll correlate that with what the device read. Essentially, the device will record an intracardiac electrogram only, as you said, if the heart rate of the patient during a possible tachyarrhythmic event went above certain set thresholds, right? So you may have VT or VF zones, and your patient in one situation may have a ventricular tachycardia that didn't reach that zone. Say your first zone is at, at 140 beats per minute, and they could have had a VT at 130 beats per minute, and they feel symptomatic, but the device didn't register it because it didn't meet the threshold. On the other hand, you could have a patient who received a shock and the heart rate was above 140. And you take a look at the electrograms, but this patient has an atrial wire, thankfully, right? And so you can take a look at the atrial beats and the ventricular beats. And you might notice that, hey, for this patient, there were more atrial beats than ventricular beats. And that could mean that actually the device falsely diagnosed an atrial fibrillation with RVR as ventricular tachycardia 
and tried either antitachycardia pacing or in this case, potentially a shock. Or alternatively, the patient actually had a ventricular tachycardia or a VF event that met the threshold, was registered on the device. You'll find the EGMs or electrograms. And I say, yes, actually with confidence that this patient had a VT. It was not falsely diagnosed as a AFib with RVR. And we need to figure out, one, why this patient's having VT? How do we prevent more VT? And thank goodness the device did what it was supposed to. So really excited to hear what you guys found, because at this point, we only have a symptom and we need to figure out what it was. You know, something that I was thinking about this week recently, actually, was you can get a lot of history from how the patient describes the shocks. So for example, in this patient, she says, I had a bunch of little shocks, and then I had a big shock. And obviously, the way patients sense these shocks, you know, varies, and there's a lot of factors that feature into that. But anti-tachycardial pacing, as we alluded to, is basically rapid pacing that tries to break up a, a circuit, let's say a ventricular arrhythmia, and shut it down. And that might be the little shock. And then the big shock might be when that failed, and she got the full therapeutic shock. But sometimes patients actually tell you, well, I was having chest pain before I got shot. And this patient, again, she's labeled as non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. We'll hear more about why she was designated that label. But sometimes, basically, patients, particularly with ischemic cardiomyopathy, they may have good scar formation that kind of is a setup for monomorphic ventricular tachycardia, but they may also have progression of disease and be coming in with polymorphic ventricular tachycardia due to ischemia, say, for example. And the patient may say, yeah, I've been actually having a lot of chest pain prior to this, and now I'm coming in because of the shock, because the chest pain is usual for me. Maybe it's a little bit more, maybe it's a little bit less, but basically, they may be coming in with ischemic shock, and it would change your evaluation a little bit, right? You'd be very focused on making sure that their ischemic evaluation is reevaluated if that's the clinical suspicion. Those could be very helpful when you're taking your history around the patient's shocks. Yeah, absolutely. Oftentimes, as you mentioned, Daniel, the the patient is very in tune with sensing it. And and unfortunately, sometimes patients are so traumatized by having been previously shocked by their ICD that sometimes they sense that they're being shocked by their ICD. And and again, that's another situation where interrogating the patient's device can be helpful. That demonstrates that actually, in fact, you didn't receive a shock. Maybe it was something else that was the etiology of your symptoms. And so getting back to Miss MP, when we interrogated her device, we noted that her underlying rhythm was sinus rhythm with complete heart block. So that kind of fits going back to the story that Shirlene deduced from the patient's history that likely this patient did initially need a pacemaker for presumably complete heart block. And in tune with what the patient reported in the last 24 hours, actually, her device detected three episodes of ventricular tachycardia that were above the threshold and actually one episode of ventricular fibrillation. Now, the three episodes that were detected in the ventricular tachycardia zone were treated with anti-tachycardia pacing. And the one episode of ventricular fibrillation was actually treated with ICD discharge, which did end up defibrillating the VF. And obviously, that's the reason the patient is here talking with us today. And speaking of our patient, now that we're done with our device interrogation, I think we're going to continue to to get some more information from her and, and examine her and figure out exactly what's going on just to further get information. Yeah, so there are a couple of things I'm thinking about right now. One is this is a patient who has a reduced ejection fraction heart failure, but her predominant clinical presentation is recurrent VT or recurrent ICD shocks that appear to be VT this time. And the second thing I'm thinking about is why would she have VT now? What actually precipitated today's VT event? I'm remembering a really nice discussion that we had with our case from Northwestern where they had a similar case. And it was a patient who was younger. It was a 40 or so year old man. 
with a history of low EF heart failure. Actually, I think the EF was about 40% too. And But his predominant presentation was recurrent ventricular arrhythmias. And I think it was Sarah Chusey who gave us a beautiful differential when she said, look, like obviously any heart failure can give you ventricular tachyarrhythmias because of scar. But the ones that come with a predominant ventricular arrhythmias, you can think about like genetic cardiomyopathy, specifically Lamin cardiomyopathy and DSP cardiomyopathy. And their case was a DSP cardiomyopathy. You think about sarcoidosis. You can think about channelopathies that potentially give you a lot of arrhythmia, and so you have arrhythmia-induced cardiomyopathy. I think I would add to that list potentially toxic cardiomyopathies, right? So if somebody's on sympathomimetic agents, and also thyrotoxicosis, hyperthyroidism. I think there's a nice differential potentially for patients with heart failure whose predominant clinical presentation is arrhythmias. But also right now, just thinking about how we're going to examine this patient and get the evaluation we're going to look for. Why is this patient having VTVF right now? And you can think, okay, is this a hemodynamic trigger, right? Are they just like in heart failure and they've got the you know neurohormonal activation and, and stretch and that's precipitating arrhythmia? Do they have electrolyte imbalance potentially because of diuretic use? Then all the other routine sort of differential diagnosis is just part of their natural history of their underlying cardiomyopathy or tachyarrhythmia syndrome. So there's a lot to tease apart here, but you know, already from the exam, we're starting to think about things to look for on the exam and in the blood work and the EKG, the chest x-ray, et cetera. So now let's get some data. Awesome. She's afebrile. Her heart rate's actually 72 at the time of the exam. Blood pressure is 146 over 86. She, her respiratory rate is 14 and she's breathing comfortably on Rubair. Her physical exam's actually very normal. She's lying down in bed. She's comfortable. She's a little anxious, but otherwise in no acute distress. Her heart sounds, she's got a normal rate and a regular rhythm. There's no murmurs. And she has a palpable device in her left chest wall. Her lungs are clear to auscultation. She has no lower extremity edema, no JVD. And her abdominal exam is soft and non-tender and non-distended. She looks pretty euvolemic and pretty comfortable. As far as her labs go, her electrolytes and renal function are all within normal limits. So are her LFTs and so is her CBC. Only things that are a little bit off, we use high sensitivity tropes at University of Chicago, and hers are slightly elevated, 24 to 29, and evened out at 29. This is expected given she just had an ICD shock, though, and honestly, they weren't super impressive to us. Her TSH is within normal limits. Her pro-BNP is within normal limits as well. We have a chest x-ray for her. It shows a normal heart size with ICD leads projected in the area of the right atrium, right ventricular apex, and coronary sinus with no sign of pulmonary edema or visible pleural effusions. Next, we look at her chest CT. The non-con CT chest showed no interstitial lung disease, but did identify two calcified granulomas in the right lower lobe. And the final impression read as stigmata of probable previous granulomatous infection. We also got an EKG for her. It was an A-sensed V-paced rhythm with a one PVC. And looking back at her prior records, because we got some information, we can see that she had a left heart cath that was done two years ago that showed clean course. Chalene, I don't want to interrupt you, but I think your pager might be going off and they're calling to evaluate our patient at the bedside again. <gasps> oh no. Okay. Uh-oh. Sounds like she's had three runs of wide complex tachycardia on telly. And her device has shocked her at least twice. The nurse asked you to come to the bedside. Shaleen, as you're heading to her room, how are you thinking about the wide complex tachycardias that the nurse is paging you about? All right. So first thing I do is check my own heart rate and make sure I'm not having a wide complex tachycardia. The second thing I do is... 
<laughs> is kind of group wide complex tachycardias into regular versus irregular. So for my regular wide complex tachycardias, I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's monomorphic VT. It could be an SVT with a barency. It could be an SVT with an accessory pathway. For my irregular wide complex tachycardias, I'm wondering about AFib, a flutter, and the kind of the scary ones, polymorphic VT, VFib. And most of all, I'm wondering, is she hemodynamically stable? Yeah. So interesting that the patient has had precisely three discharges of the device because, in fact, that is how we define something we call ventricular tachycardia storm or VT storm. And so if you've had three or more episodes within a 24-hour period, which clearly our patient has, we would consider that VT storm. Now, how do I think about VT storm? Because it's a problem that we run into very often in, in cardiology and in internal medicine residency, taking care of very sick patients in the cardiac ICU. So in general, I think about this is a condition that usually happens in patients who have structurally abnormal heart. So either they have some sort of existing myocardial scar, they're having ongoing cardiac ischemia, they can be severe electrolyte derangements, as Ahmed mentioned earlier on, thyroid derangements, so on and so forth. But the most important thing is obviously assessing the patient's hemodynamics. Once you've done that and determined that medications are necessary, that's the first thing I'll reach for if the patient is hemodynamically stable and not requiring immediate cardioversion. So the way that the medications I think about, obviously amiodarone is one that we're very comfortable reaching for right off the bat. We know that it will suppress almost any arrhythmia that can come about, and particularly ventricular tachycardia. But there are other antiarrhythmic medications that aren't used quite frequently that can be as effective, if not more effective. And when I think about those, I think about my PALs, my PALs, procainamide, amiodarone, as I mentioned, and lidocaine. And I particularly think about lidocaine in patients who are coming in with VT from ischemia. So as Daniel mentioned earlier on, typically that's seen in the setting of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. And so why do I say that some of these medications are more efficacious than the others? Actually, there's a study that came out. It was done in Spain called the Procamio study. And these were patients who were seen in the emergency department with stable VT, and they were randomized to either receive procainamide or amiodarone. And actually, the patients who received procainamide had fewer major cardiac events and higher proportion of tachycardia termination within 40 minutes of administration. So actually quite effective. These medications can be layered on top of one another in cases of very refractory ventricular tachycardia. When I'm adding on multiple antiarrhythmic medications, I'm also thinking about these patients, as I mentioned, typically have underlying structural heart disease. So more often than not, they have an ICD in place or at least a, a pacemaker. And so in those patients, I'm considering putting the wand over their device and adjusting their therapies, their anti-tachycardia pacing therapies or adjusting their sensing zones. Obviously, we think that a lot of times when patients are coming in with ventricular tachycardia storm that it's driven by increased adrenergic tone. And so one thing you can do if your medications are not working, if you've attempted to adjust the patient's device therapies and those aren't working, you can actually sedate and intubate these patients just to really reduce that adrenergic drive. You can certainly think about VT ablation actually going in with catheters into the ventricle. And you can actually obtain a lot of information about where VT is originating from based on just a surface EKG. And obviously, when we're doing things like EP studies and intracardiac electrograms and that sort of thing, you get a really clear sense of where this VT is originating from. And, and you can target energy in that area in attempts to break up that abnormal signal that's coming from that area. 
The last step that I think about, in addition to VT ablation, is actually along the same vein of reducing adrenergic drive. And so that's something called a stellate ganglionectomy. Remember, your stellate ganglion provides the adrenergic innervation to the heart. And so if we're able to either inject that with alcohol bedside or surgically remove it, again, we're going to be reducing the drive and the input from the adrenergic nervous system, which theoretically and and practically does reduce ventricular tachycardia events. And so in this particular patient, the decision was made to start the patient on lidocaine in the hospital ward, just given that she was having refractory VT despite her device being adjusted. Well, Ian, that was fantastic. You know, ventricular storm is scary, right? Even though it's three times per day, every time the patient has an arrhythmia, that could be a huge setback. If the device therapy is working, that's great. But first of all, it could be really traumatic to the patient. But second of all, like their hemodynamics could get out of whack, particularly if they have an ischemic cardiomyopathy to begin with. And, you know, you really want to stop these arrhythmias from occurring and you have to have an algorithm to build out so that you can try a little bit of a less aggressive approach and then get more aggressive very quickly and rapidly so that you can titrate your therapies to meet the need. Having this pre-plan and having an approach like you've so eloquently put forward is, is just incredibly helpful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. This is a great breakdown and so far a terrific approach. And I love bringing your anti-arrhythmic pals to the bedside. But I'll also go back and say, keep our interrogation device at bedside because we think about the differential diagnosis for a white complex tachycardia. Is it an SVT with aberrancy or a ventricular arrhythmia? And we can certainly go down our Brugada criteria, but this patient has an atrial wire and two ventricular wires. And so it'd be very easy to to take a look at to see if you have more atrial activations or more ventricular contractions. And you'll know immediately which it is based on where you're getting more electrical activity from. And in addition to our anti-arrhythmic pals, in addition to sedation, intubation, hemodynamic support, even ablation and stellar ganglion blockade, one of the first maneuvers we might try at the bedside might be trying to just pace them out of it using the device itself. So many tools that we have at our disposal. What did we do next? Here at the University of Chicago, we're very lucky to have Shirlene and some of the best internal medicine residents who are running to the bedside, thinking through why complex tachycardia, bringing their antiarrhythmic pals with them to treat, in this case, just needing the L, the lidocaine. And we as cardiology fellows are blessed to have home call and drive in and have some time to think about what is the differential of the underlying etiology of the VT while Shalene is able to get this patient under control. So when we think about the etiology, the best way to break down VT is first into if they have a structurally normal or structurally abnormal heart. So patients that have VT in structurally normal hearts, this is going to be the minority of patients, about 10%. And these can further be broken down into idiopathic VTs or primary arrhythmia syndromes. Your idiopathic VTs are going to be things like outflow tract VTs, fascicular VTs, papillary muscle VTs, while your primary arrhythmia syndromes are going to be things like Brugada, long QT, short QT, CPVT. Now, most of your patients, such as ours, are going to have a structurally abnormal heart when they have VT. And in this case, you can break it down similar to how we break down heart failure into ischemic or non-ischemic. We're talking about ischemic VT. This can cause either monomorphic VT or polymorphic VT. And this can give you a clue as into how acute the ischemia is. As has already been briefly mentioned, when you see polymorphic VT, your differential really should be ischemia, ischemia, then ischemia, and ischemia after that. Monomorphic VT, and you know they have an underlying ischemic cardiomyopathy, for instance, this is likely that they have a scar from old ischemia, creating a reentrant circuit, and that's why you have the monomorphic VT. On the other hand, in your structurally abnormal hearts, you have non-ischemic VT. That's where we get into our non-ischemic arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies, such as ARVC, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, cardiac sarcoidosis, myocarditis, giant cells specifically, but really any myocarditis can, Chagas disease. And you may end up in a point like we do with some non-ischemic cardiomyopathies of having an idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy. 
Although, as we've learned through a lot of the Cardio Nerds episodes, it's always helpful to do more investigation as we learn more in the field of cardiology, as you may end up coming across a underlying genetic or genetic cardiomyopathy, such as I mentioned earlier, like a lamin mutation or a desmoplaque in cardiomyopathy. As Mark just laid out, we have a patient who's coming in with heart block. She's coming in with ventricular arrhythmias. And she's had persistent heart failure for what sounds like several years at this point in time. And so we know that her cardiomyopathy is non-ischemic. And as Mark just alluded to with his great differential diagnosis for non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, we decided to proceed forward with an echo. And so her EF was in range of where it had previously been, 40 to 45%. She had a mildly dilated left ventricle and some elevated filling pressures. I think knowing that information, we can check off some of those things from the list, including ARVC, at least advanced ARVC, does not appear consistent with a history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Myocarditis, I don't think we can check off the list at this point in time, given that the echocardiogram findings can be unremarkable to very remarkable. And I think in this particular patient coming in with these constellation of symptoms, heart block that's been present for several years, recurrent ventricular arrhythmias that have been refractory to therapy, as well as EF that's in the mild to moderately reduced range, the decision was to proceed with cardiac MRI, given that our clinical suspicion for infiltrative cardiomyopathy, perhaps sarcoidosis, was incredibly high. And moving to our patient's cardiac MRI results, the left ventricle was normal, LVEF was recorded at 40%. There was some apical wall dyskinesis that was commented on. The patient's right ventricle was also normal, had mildly reduced function, RV ejection fraction of 41%. And interestingly, there was a large epicardial area of late gadolinium enhancement in the basal inferior wall near the RV insertion point and other areas of epicardial late gadolinium enhancement in the basal anterior wall which were highly suspicious for a diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis. And so at this point in time, our wheels were really turning and we were getting really excited. This patient had ongoing cardiomyopathy for several years, had heart block that was unexplained, had had multiple ventricular arrhythmias. So we were really excited to realize that this was high on the differential given that no one had really considered it in the past. Yeah, Ian, these results really speak to the value of cardiac MRI, and especially within the context of tissue characterization. Just think for a moment for the audience what Ian just said. We were able to tell that there was late gadolinium enhancement on the epicardial surface of X wall. That means that we have enough resolution to say, is it epicardial? Is it transmural? Is it predominantly endocardial? LGE, LGE being scar tissue primarily where the gadolinium essentially gets stuck extracellularly and remains in place when you re-image later. And the differences there are so important, right? Because you think if this is a patient with ischemic cardiomyopathy, the part of the wall that's furthest away from the epicardial coronary vasculature is the endocardium, right? And so that's where you expect the greatest injury to take place. So if you have endocardial LGE in a vascular territory, it's predominantly ischemic. And we know just from the patterns of amyloid deposition, if it's uh, diffuse endocardial LGE in a non-vascular territory distribution, you have a greater likelihood that it's cardiac amyloidosis. Whereas if you have patchy mid-myocardial or patchy epicardial LGE, then you start thinking about sarcoidosis and myocarditis. And here, correct me if I'm wrong, Ian, this is one of the characteristic places we find epicardial LGE is in the septal RV insertion points, the anterior septum is one of the reasons why you may get conduction abnormalities. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, Ahmed, multiple areas and and the most common in cardiac MRI that we see in patients with cardiac sarcoid are are exactly what we saw in MIS-MP in the basal septum and the lateral walls. And this is actually something commonly seen in cardiac sarcoidosis that it has its own name. It's called the hook sign because on the images that you can see in the cardiac MRI, and you'll be able to see the images associated with this podcast there, actually looks like a hook. It's curved and involving that area seen clearly on cardiac MRI. And on the other side of the coin, 
in someone that may have early cardiac sarcoidosis or the suspicions early, you can actually have a completely normal cardiac MRI. So you can still have a presentation of perhaps heart failure with reduced EF, and perhaps there just hasn't been quite enough inflammation from the uncaseating granulomas lead to clinical disease that's detectable on MRI. Guys, this discussion has been really phenomenal, and particularly when you were talking about the brilliance of what we can get from cardiac MRI in terms of tissue characterization and how we can find fingerprints of different disease patterns that show up on cardiac MRI that really can blow open the diagnosis. For many of the things that we're looking for on cardiac MRI, you really want to have a suspicion for it when you order that MRI. And so this really brings us back to our patient here, right? You have a patient who's developed non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, has already a device in for pacing, has a device in for tachytherapies, and is coming in after a couple of years of having this device in. And now we're basically getting enough data and enough information to make us concerned about sarcoidosis. I think it's really important to recognize that non-ischemic cardiomyopathy is a non-case-closed diagnosis, right? We always have to be thinking about what is the etiology of this patient's non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. And that means digging deep into family history. It means ensuring that they actually don't have a coronary component. It means digging deep into thinking about genetic causes. And it means digging deep into thinking of inflammatory causes and so many other causes that we've already laid out very nicely. But it's really not a case-closed situation. And the disease progression gives you clues, right? In the acute setting, a patient that's coming in with an acute cardiomyopathy that turns out to be non-ischemic and has a lot of arrhythmias, you should have warning bells that you're thinking of something like giant cell myocarditis, right? But in the long term, you know, if somebody has a cardiomyopathy and basically over time has had multiple arrhythmic and conduction issues, you should be putting that together and thinking about sarcoid as a diagnosis, which is exactly what you guys are doing, what led you to the MRI to show evidence of scarring and potentially inflammation. I think it's definitely a good time to review what sarcoid is and how it manifests in the way that it does. Yeah, Dan, that was perfect. I think one of the biggest takeaways of this case is the idea that you really need to further investigate non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. The number of patients we see as outside hospital transfers and carry on these non-ischemic diagnoses, and we later find that they may have a treatable or reversible underlying etiology. And, and therefore, it's very important as Shirlene started at the beginning of the case, and as Ian continued to look through all of the data and the clinical presentation to see what is the true underlying ideology of their non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, if truly non-ischemic, like you also mentioned. But to get to your point about cardiac sarcoid, I will say as a medicine resident going to cardiology, I thought sarcoid was maybe the last thing I'd have to know about. But it does affect about 5% of patients that have sarcoid will have clinical cardiac symptoms, although anywhere from a quarter to a half of patients with non-cardiac sarcoid will have been shown to have some involvement in the heart on autopsy studies. Sarcoidosis in general is considered a multi-system, non-caseating granulomatous disease of unknown etiology. It's caused by T-cells and macrophages that are activated by an antigen trigger, forming granulomatous inflammation, which then leads to fibrosis. It is from this fibrosis that whether it occurs in the AV valve causing conduction disease or whether occurring in the myocardium creating a, a nidus for a reentrant circuit in VT, whether building up so much fibrosis that you start getting a reduced EF, that all comes from that prior inflammation. With sarcoid, what's also interesting is there are still a lot of unknowns. It's thought to be a classic two-head hypothesis like we learned in med school, where you have an immune response to an antigen trigger in a genetically predisposed individual. And some of the data that points to this is on the genetic side. We have associations with sarcoidosis with certain races and ethnicities. We see family clustering of cases and twin studies. On the environmental side, it's interesting that sarcoidosis is more common in higher and lower latitudes. Basically, the farther you are from the equator, the higher the prevalence of the disease. And some other clues into environmental triggers are related to certain metal dust. And those very sad data related to firefighters that are exposed to some of the dust around the World Trade Center after 9-11 later develop sarcoid-like disease. So as Mark nicely laid out the, the pathophysiology of sarcoidosis, 
I think coming back to our case, how does this manifest in a cardiac setting? And similar to in our patient's case, we have a constellation of findings, including conduction abnormality, predominantly AV block, as we've seen in our case, complete heart block, and right bundle branch block is also seen very commonly. Patients with cardiac sarcoid are not immune from atrial arrhythmias. AFib can be seen in almost 20% of patients. The thought is that there's inflammation from these non-caseating granulomas within the pulmonary venous circuit that leads to increased automaticity from that area. You can also have atrial stretch from the elevated end diastolic pressure associated with the increased filling pressures that these patients often have with cardiac sarcoidosis. Ventricular arrhythmias, again, spot on with our patient here, thought to be related to either ongoing inflammation within the myocardium or scar, as we saw in our cardiac MRI. Unfortunately, a lot of patients with cardiac sarcoidosis can prevent as a sudden cardiac death, as our patient did actually, had VF events. And this can be seen in up to two-thirds of cases of cardiac sarcoid. If sarcoidosis involving the heart becomes extensive, obviously it can present as cardiomyopathy or heart failure. This can be seen in both heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. The right ventricle, as we talked about, is very commonly involved in cardiac sarcoidosis. It can be involved in several different ways. Cardiac sarcoidosis can lead to pulmonary hypertension, so you can develop chronically elevated RV pressures, RV dilation, and eventually RV failure in core pulmonary. You can also have direct inflammation within the RV myocardium. And remember that the RV does not have robust amount of myocardium to be able to sustain lots of scar, so it doesn't tolerate that very well. Ian, thank you for going over the cardiac manifestations of sarcoidosis. And it's interesting, right? It tracks the pathophysiology so well. You can correlate the distribution and extent and severity of granulomatous inflammation with the manifestation, right? If you have predominantly septal inflammation, you may see conduction block. If you have patchy inflammation, you may have that leads to scar tissue and reentrant arrhythmias. You may end up seeing VTVF and predominantly tachyarrhythmia presentation. And if you have very extensive distributed inflammation and scar generation that's more widespread, then your presentation may include heart failure. And of course, you may have all of the above. And you also outlined the atrial arrhythmias. Let's go back to how we image this because the timeline for this disease, you start off with some degree of inflammation and over time you develop scar tissue. And as that damage is done, you get the cardiac manifestations. So how do we image this? That is a great question, Amit. And that is exactly why our next step was to do a cardiac PET scan. Because like you mentioned, with many inflammatory cardiomyopathies, specifically cardiac sarcoidosis, again, we see this acute inflammation that turns into fibrosis and scar, which causes problems. So the question is, when we see this LGE on the cardiac MRI that is suggestive of cardiac sarcoidosis, what we don't know is that LGE due to acute inflammation or old chronic scar. So the way to answer this is, again, to do this cardiac PET scan. Cardiac PET is great to differentiate active sarcoid inflammation from scar. You pair this usually with myocardial perfusion imaging, which is the equivalent of the resting scan on what you think of a normal nuclear stress test. The hardest part for patients is often inadequate diet. Basically, it's a high-fat, low-carb diet. You're more or less putting your patients into ketosis just to deprive the heart of using glucose and using ketones. You then give them uh, FDG, which is fluorodeoxyglucose, which any areas of macrophages within the heart, areas of active inflammation, will uptake that and it'll light up on a cardiac PET scan. You pair that then with your myocardial perfusion scans, which will show you any perfusion defect. When you look at your tests, you really have basically five possible results. It can either be totally normal in that you don't have active inflammation on the PET and you don't have any perfusion defects, that'd be a normal heart. Sometimes you can get diffuse, mild uptake on the whole heart on the PET scan, and that usually just means that your patient didn't do the diet well enough, and therefore the test ends up being inaccurate and doesn't totally help you. But once you exclude the normal and the poorly prepped test, 
you really have three possible results for this kind of cardiac PET test. You either can have active inflammation on the PET scan without any perfusion defects on the nuclear scan, which shows you that the inflammatory cardiomyopathy or cardiac sarcoid potentially is currently actively inflamed, but is not caused that fibrosis and scarring that we've been talking about. You can have active inflammation on the PET scan as well as some perfusion defects, which would indicate that you currently have some active inflammation, but it's been around long enough to have caused some scar and fibrosis. And it's what's interesting is sometimes that inflammation can be around the same area, and sometimes you'll see scar in areas that are not actively inflamed and vice versa. You could have an option where you have active inflammation on the PET scan as well as perfusion defects on the nuclear scan. And at times you have the active inflammation in the same area as the perfusion defects, or you can have more inflammation, less defects and vice versa. And those defects either can be due to the scar and fibrosis that we've been talking about or due to microvascular compression from the edema caused by the inflammation. And that's important because we can't just think of this as burnt out sarcoid that can't be treated. Again, we talked about how important it was to find the etiology of the non-ischemic cardiomyopathy in this patient. And if it turns out something that responds to immunosuppression, that can even help with some of these edematous areas that look like scar. So the last possible result is that you don't have any inflammation on the PET part of the scan, but you do have perfusion defects on the nuclear scan. Now, of course, if these perfusion defects are in a specific vascular territory, then maybe it's worth going back and reevaluating, is this truly non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, or maybe this was an ischemic cardiomyopathy. If it's more classic, what we call colloquially old burnt-out sarcoid, without the active inflammation, this is probably fibrotic scar, and this would be more in a more patchy non-vascular territory that would lean towards that and away from ischemic cardiomyopathy. Mark, that was beautiful. And one of the things I love about cardiology is how we use multimodality imaging to better understand what's going on with our patients. And so we think about sarcoidosis, and as Ian outlined beautifully, the pathophysiology, it's essentially a granulomatous inflammation that over time may turn into scar. And the two sort of advanced imaging modalities that we have to evaluate this are cardiac MRI, which generally is better at looking for scar with LGE. There is T2 mapping that potentially can look for edema, but certainly isn't as accurate yet, you know, that may improve. And we have cardiac FTG PET, which is better at looking for inflammation. It's not necessarily either or, right? They provide complementary information. And so you can glean a lot of information from both. And I loved how you helped us understand the PET scan. Like cardiac muscle, the myocytes themselves normally take up glucose. And so that whole prep is so important. We have to suppress the normal myocyte glucose metabolism, and we do so with a ketogenic diet. And so, you know, like making sure that that is done properly and make sure you don't have a non-diagnostic test is so important. And the overview was beautiful. But what did our patients' PET scans show? So our patients' PET showed extensive uptake of FDG involving the basal anterior wall and much of the inferior and septal walls consistent with active myocardial inflammation. The myocardial perfusion aspect of the test showed a perfusion defect in the basal to mid-inferior wall. In this case, we had a part of the perfusion defect matched up with the area of inflammation, but there were other areas of acute inflammation without underlying scar or edema. So we have a lot of things right now that are pointing towards cardiac sarcoidosis as an explanation for our patients' non-ischemic HFREF and VT. But still, do we have enough information here to really cinch down this diagnosis to really give her a diagnosis of cardiac sarcoid? We have to kind of look back at the principles for the diagnosis. In order to give a diagnosis of sarcoidosis, you have to show a clinical presentation that's compatible with diagnosis. You have to show demonstration of non-necrotizing granulomatous inflammation within the tissue. And you have to exclude other alternative forms of granulomatous disease. When we look at MP, we can check off quite a few of those things. First, for her clinical presentation, she presented with VT of unknown etiology, as well as evidence of granulomatous disease on her CT. 
She doesn't have any high-risk exposures. We asked her whether she worked in a healthcare center, whether she's ever been incarcerated or worked in the jail or lived outside of the country or in an area with endemic granulomatous disease such as TB. And she said no for all of those questions. The only thing we're kind of missing right now is tissue. So when it comes to tissue with sarcoidosis, it's really about getting to the most easily accessed lymph node that you can get the most tissue to look for a non-caseating granuloma. Commonly, we think of a big mediastinal lymph node that would be easily accessed with bronchoscopy. Unfortunately, our patient did not have any of those, and us being the cardio nerds that we are, decided to first try an endomyocardial biopsy. Unfortunately, endomyocardial biopsy has a low sensitivity due to the focal patchy nature, with only about a quarter of patients with cardiac sarcoid having positive biopsies on endomyocardial biopsy. You can improve the specificity of this by doing electroanatomic mapping or image-guided biopsy, particularly in patients that have a lot of septal inflammation, you may have better luck. We went forward with our endomyocardial biopsy, and our patient had no evidence of granulomas, inflammation, or giant cells. And just with the concern for infiltrative disease, although this is not the exact illness script we were thinking, a Congo red stain was still sent, and it was negative for any amyloid deposition. So MP's endomyocardial biopsy is negative, and initially that was a little disappointing, but looking further into it, we found that actually the diagnostic yield of endomyocardial biopsies is pretty low. And so one being negative doesn't eliminate the diagnosis. In fact, if you turn to the Heart Rhythm Society guidelines, you will actually find that you don't really need a positive endobiocardial biopsy to make the diagnosis as long as you meet other criteria. So what are those criteria? You need three things. First, you need evidence of extracardiac disease. You need clinical features that demonstrate cardiac involvement of sarcoid. And finally, you need to really rule out other potential causes of the clinical manifestations. So I want to hone in a little bit on the clinical features that demonstrate cardiac involvement, because right now we don't really have tissue from an extracardiac area that can give us point number one. So going through those clinical features, some of those are include an unexplained reduced LVEF, less than 40%, which check, MP has that. Unexplained sustained VT, she's got that too. Mobitz type 2 second degree heart block or third degree heart block, so that's another check. Patchy uptake on dedicated cardiac PET scans, she's got that, an LGE on cardiac MRI in a pattern consistent with cardiac sarcoidosis, she has that as well. And for point three, we've already interrogated our poor patient to see whether she has any other reasons to have uh, granulomatous disease. So we can also say that we've probably ruled out any other potential causes for her cardiac manifestations. Now, that means that we are really just left with looking for a histological diagnosis of extracardiac sarcoidosis. So, Charlene, it sounds like this case, this mystery hinges on one question. Does she or does she not have extracardiac sarcoidosis? How did you figure that out? So we had to go back and look at some more of our imaging to see whether there were any other locations that we could potentially sample. And we were able to look back at our whole body PET scan and identified an area in her right axilla that might actually give us a diagnosis. We biopsied her lymph node in her right axilla and her path came back with poorly formed non-necrotizing granulomas. Of course, we still have to rule out any other potential causes of granulomatous disease. And so the cells were stained and were found to be negative for any fungal or mycobacterial organisms that might also give us a similar picture. After this extensive workup, we now have a probable diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis based on the HRS guidelines. The question is, we've gone through all this effort to secure an etiology for this patient's non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. We've put this emphasis on why this is so important. And one of the reasons is when you find a diagnosis such as probable cardiac sarcoidosis, the treatment is different. 
While these patients should receive guideline-directed medical therapy for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, like your RNAs, beta blockers, MRAs, SGLT2 inhibitors, as there is probable benefit, the real backbone of treatment for these patients is immunosuppression. There aren't a lot of RCTs or really any evaluating immunosuppression use, dosing, duration, So really, the treatment course can differ institution to institution or even physician to physician. In general, though, prednisone is the most common first-line agent. There are studies showing it will improve AV conduction. It can improve mild to moderate LV dysfunction. It can quiet down VT. Some common steroid-sparing agents that are used can be methotrexate, azathioprine, mycophenolate, or sometimes even more potent guns like infliximab or rituximab. Although at that point, we're definitely talking with our rheumatology colleagues. Finally, patients who advance to stage D heart failure should still be referred for advanced options. Transplant and LVAD can be options for these patients. A common question is if sarcoid will return into the transplanted heart. And while this is only about 0.5% of patients that are transplanted are for sarcoid, so we don't have a lot of data, overall, the immunosuppression needed with heart transplants often keeps any underlying sarcoid quiescent. And so at this point in time, given that we're focused on treating the entire patient's condition, there was discussion of consideration for possible VT ablation. And so how do patients with cardiac sarcoidosis do with VT ablation? Is it on the table? Is it an option whatsoever? The answer is that it's actually very complicated. There have only been uh, very limited data in this area. There was recently a study that was published, a retrospective analysis of only 24 patients and patients who had evidence of active inflammation and SCAR underwent VT ablation, as did patients who had just evidence of SCAR, so no active inflammation. And it turned out that, as we would suspect, patients who had only SCAR and no active inflammation had a less likelihood of recurrence of ventricular tachycardia than those patients who had both inflammation and SCAR. And the reason that we think that VT ablation in these patients is suboptimal is exactly what we saw in our patient's case. There's several different areas of active inflammation, several different areas of scar. So for our colleagues in electrophysiology to attempt to go in and perform ablation to all these different areas would be incredibly challenging and and painstaking. The other thing being, had this patient not already had an ICD in place, would we consider one in a patient like this? And actually, the American Heart Association gives a class 2A indication for ICD implantation in patients who have EF greater than 35% and SCAR on MRI and an abnormal PET. And so technically, she could be considered in this patient population. But again, otherwise, the backbone of therapy, as Mark mentioned, is obviously going to be immunosuppression. If you have active inflammation going on, most often you do not want to put a device in these patients just given that they develop SCAR or they may heal with immunosuppression is quite high. Yeah. So, Charlene, you guys did a great job working this patient up. And what ended up happening with Miss MP? We decided to go ahead and pursue treatment. And given her metabolic risk factors, rheumatology really wanted her to not remain on high-dose steroids for a very long time and decided to initiate her on prednisone 90 milligrams by mouth daily as well as a steroid-sparing agent, infliximab, with the intention of weaning her off of the prednisone and just having her on infliximab monotherapy eventually. And so that's just what we did. We started her on the pred 90 and the infliximab while she was inpatient. The final question that we had was, what do we do about follow-up? When do we repeat imaging and how and when do we titrate her off of her immunosuppression? Unfortunately, there's not great evidence to support any of these questions. In general, patients like MP are followed clinically and a repeat PET scan is done to assess for improvement or resolution of inflammation. Eventually, immunosuppressives, especially high-dose steroids like prednisone, are weaned off. And then you continue doing repeat PET scans to assess for recurrence. A lot of our patients who have heart failure do have metabolic syndrome, and it's just true of a lot of Americans. 
And the goal is really to get her off steroids as much as possible, or at least a, a low dose as possible to avoid a lot of the long-term adverse side effects. And if steroid therapy is difficult to wean, we add on steroid sparing agents such as methotrexate or in this patient's case, infliximab in order to avoid going back up on steroids. So for Miss MP, we continue to follow her up. And thankfully, we have great news. She no longer has had any more additional episodes of VT. Her 90 milligrams of prednisone went down to 20 milligrams daily. She's continuing getting her infliximab infusions. Miss MP has her repeat PET scan coming up. And the plan is to continue to titrate her prednisone down. And if we need to, up titrate on her infliximab as needed. All right. That was a terrific case presentation, Charlene. I'm glad your patient is doing well. I love how you just framed the management of sarcoidosis. I think at least conceptually, the treatment approach is as straightforward as the diagnosis can be challenging, right? There are only two things for treatment. One, you manage the inflammation. And two, you manage the cardiac problems. For the inflammation, on the one hand, you start off with steroids, you add steroid sparing agents, and you either escalate or de-escalate over time according to the clinical picture and inflammation on cardiac PET. And this is where the value of PET really shines above cardiac MRI in terms of adjusting immunosuppression long-term. And then two, you do what you normally do in treating the cardiac manifestations. And in my mind, the cardiac manifestations, like we outlined earlier, are atrial fibrillation, right? Same thing that we do with everyone else with atrial fibrillation with regards to stroke prophylaxis, rate control, rhythm control, ventricular tachyarrhythmias. And we talked about antiarrhythmics, ablation, wrist stratification for primary prophylaxis and or secondary prophylaxis, ICD. We talked about heart failure and the different varieties of heart failure. Low EF heart failure will still do the routine guideline-directed medical therapy and device therapy, plus or minus. Again, if you have dilated cardiomyopathy with functional MR, we think about MitraClip, all the things we do for our routine heart failure patients, advanced heart failure treatments for end-stage heart failure. I'd also include in the manifestations uh, pulmonary hypertension, which can be multifactorial, either coming from a direct effects on the vasculature or from fibrotic lung disease or from uh, left heart disease causing pulmonary hypertension. And for some patients, pulmonary vasodilators can be helpful. You put all that together and you have your management approach for sarcoidosis, and it's a multidisciplinary team effort like many things are in cardiology, but here we'll probably include our pulmonologists and other organ specialists, depending on the systems that are involved, our rheumatologists for the more advanced immunosuppression. But lo and behold, this is such a great case that demonstrates so beautifully all things that are so great about cardiology from the diagnosis, multimodality imaging, and a team effort to really take care of our patient, get back to the bedside and make sure that they're doing well. That's exactly right. And thinking about this paradigm of going through the diagnosis and treatment algorithm of sarcoidosis, it really reminds me of myocarditis in general. We shouldn't forget that sarcoid is a kind of myocarditis. And the way I think about sarcoidosis is you got this football on the field and the football gets fumbled and all of a sudden you have this pylon of football players just piling onto each other on top of this football. And the thing about in sarcoid, that football is an antigen of some etiology that we haven't really identified yet. And all the football players are this granulomatous tissues, all the cells that are piling on and you get these granulomas. And when that occurs in the heart, we have all the things that we've talked about today. But going back to myocarditis in general, Ahmed actually proposed this really wonderful schema of myocarditis, which really is applicable to sarcoid. And there are five steps that we go through. So step one is to build a clinical suspicion, which is just so essential in patients like this. As we've highlighted time and time again, you got to put the story together. And then all of a sudden, it's going to hit you in the face that this patient has sarcoid. But when you look at the individual things that are occurring to the patient, you may treat them in isolation without building the case. So step one is you got to build that clinical suspicion. Step two is decide on an endomyocardial biopsy, or in sarcoid's case, 
potential imaging that can help you out, a PET, MRI, to help make that diagnosis or get you closer to the diagnosis so that we can get a probable or definite cardiac sarcoid. Step three is manage the acute cardiac injury, which you did so beautifully in this case with the antiarrhythmia and as well as like basically device management to get the patient through the actual presentation that they're getting through. And then step four is to manage the chronic cardiac sequelae, as we talked about with guideline-directed therapies and things that Ahmed just highlighted. And then five is, and it's very important for sarcoid, is to treat the myocarditis, and in this case, the immunotherapies. But again, we cannot just put on medicines and then just walk away. That's not how medicine works. You got to track it. And so again, you cycle back to that PET scan to demonstrate that you've crushed that immunological response that is causing so much damage in the heart and other tissues potentially. So guys, we've highlighted so many times, we just have such an appreciation for the field of cardiology and the process of going through this, building a case scenario, putting together the story with the patient, matching it up to imaging, diagnostics, and then executing a plan and then following up on that plan. That's something that makes our hearts flutter about cardiology. So Mark, Ian, and Charlene, I'll pass the baton on to you. Guys, if you don't mind, would you tell us what makes your hearts flutter about cardiology? Thanks, Hama and Dan, for having us on the podcast. This was a ton of fun to put together and to work through. In terms of what makes my heart flutter about cardiology, I really enjoy the breadth of clinical medicine from anywhere from acute ICU care to the continuity and clinic. On the same day, you can help manage some of the sickest patients in the hospital and using both patient-specific data like invasive hemodynamics or the applications of the huge amount of evidence-based medicine we have in cardiology. And later that day, you can be in clinic and see patients living their best life after a heart transplant and all that or after cardiac recovery. Yeah, Dan and Amit, thank you so much for having us on. Had a really good time, learned a ton going through this. So this was really helpful on many different levels. So what makes my heart flutter about cardiology and not to piggyback off Mark too much is that while we have such a breadth of data and this data informs our clinical decisions in so many ways, you can take a case like we just did here with cardiac sarcoid or one of the many other cases we see within cardiology. And a lot of times it can be incredibly challenging and it's not as clear cut as coronary artery disease, for example. So that's really what keeps me going every day and looking at each patient as they are a unique individual in a unique case and end up learning a lot. All right. Thank you guys so much. As a trainee who's coming up in cardiology, it was really inspiring. What makes my heart flutter about cardiology? I think I'm at heart a creative person who prefers big picture to minuscule details. And I loved right away that I could figure out and work through pathology and come up with management plans based on that, kind of like the detective work that we did in this case. I also really love that cardiology is an incredibly evidence-based field. It is a creative field. It's one where there's always new guidelines coming out and we're always updating our care. And I like that it keeps us on our toes and that we're always pushing the envelope as far as new therapies, new devices, etc. And I just like working with my hands. And I love that almost no matter what I decide to do within cardiology, I'll be able to continue to do different procedures. I think CARDS is the best field. So for any aspiring medical students and residents who are thinking about it, you should probably go for it. Ian, Mark, Shirlene, welcome to the family. We loved having you. That was just a phenomenal talk. And Asterix, we love all fields for our non-cardiology listeners. (laughs) We're really celebrating the love and passion for the practice of cardiology and the study of the heart and its cardiovascular system. We're very inclusive. So thank you, guys. This is a great trip to Chicago. I love it here. 
And now the eCPR segment by Drs. Natasha Sarswat and Amit Patel. Our two sarcoidosis experts are both fantastic teachers. In fact, they both happen to be our back-to-back winners of our Cardiology Fellows Teaching Award. Dr. Amit Patel is an expert in advanced cardiac imaging, and he serves as our director of cardiac MRI and CT. He's done a lot of research on cardiac sarcoidosis and was one of the authors on the 2014 HRS guidelines that we use to diagnose our patient in this case. Dr. Natasha Sarswat is an expert in advanced heart failure, cardiomyopathies, and transplant. She serves as our director of cardiac amyloid and infiltrative cardiomyopathy program. All right. I'm Natasha Sarswat. I'm one of the advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologists who has a love for sarcoidosis. So that case was particularly interesting. And I think Shirlene really sealed her fellowship there by coming to the fellow's rescue and taking care of that patient. I couldn't agree more, uh, Natasha. I'm Amit Patel. I'm one of the uh, cardiologists here at University of Chicago and focused on uh, multimodality cardiovascular imaging. I was particularly struck, Natasha, how the, the two fellows in our program kind of were just sitting there drinking coffee while the poor resident ran to the bedside. Is that, what do you think about that? I think that's classic University of Chicago fellows. <laughs> no, they're, they're great. They're great. At least on Mondays. They're excellent on Mondays. This was a really interesting case, and I think it highlights one of the really important things that you and I have talked about in the past often, which is really understanding the underlying diagnosis. And and in this patient, you know, she presented initially with some heart block, and she got treated appropriately in the sense that she got the pacemaker, but no one asked the question as to why she was having heart block. And then over time, the next few years, we, we learned that she ended up developing heart failure, ventricular tachycardia, and then ultimately really BT storm. So I, I guess, how, how do you know when to dig deeper, Natasha, for, for the etiology? You're highlighting something that's very important. We get all of these patients in clinic labeled as a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. And I think it's, first of all, always good to go through a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy workup. Obviously, guided by some of your imaging, and your imaging will give you a pretest probability for certain things. For instance, if the imaging shows significant LVH, you're going to think about more infiltrative things. But, you know, we walk through kind of an algorithm of non-ischemic etiologies, including the infiltrative cardiomyopathies, but certainly not limited to things such as thyroid function, HIV, even iron studies to think of things like hemochromatosis. And I think it's always important to, to think about the underlying etiology. And truthfully, even when I write notes on these patients, I have a organized way of dealing with these people as Mark knows from my clinic. And it's always, you know, number one, etiology and walking through the etiology and making sure number two, volume status, number three, neurohormonal blockade, Number four, advanced therapies, such as things like CRT, when we need to think about cardiopulmonary testing, think about escalating to things like LVAD and transplant. So that's kind of how I organize it in my head, but I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, and I, of course, I take a, with these heart failure patients, the first step is certainly differentiating between ischemic and non-ischemic. And I think that happens pretty routinely everywhere. And then after that, I I start to rely, of course, we take the history, just like you said, and and basic lab work. But then I I do find doing cardiac MRI in, in most of these heart failure patients and arrhythmia patients can be very valuable. In this particular case, imagine if imaging studies were ordered earlier after, let's say, the heart block, we may have had the opportunity to start her immunosuppressive therapy before she developed the heart failure and before she developed the VT and and ultimately a VT storm. And so we really had a lost opportunity to prevent the disaster uh, that she went through. 
I think you're totally right. When I speak to patients in clinic, this is exactly what I say. Let's look for the reversible cause. And truthfully, I do think MRI can help us delineate those reversible causes and certainly gives the patient in a lot of ways a better prognosis if there is something reversible, something more we can do, such as immunosuppression beyond just our standard neurohormonal blockade, which is obviously very important, but it adds another layer of treatment that we can give them to potentially rebound an ejection fraction, quiet the arrhythmias. But I think you hit on something very clear, which is the utility of cardiac MRI. And I can't tell you as an advanced heart failure physician, the importance of your and my relationship, you know, every single patient with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, if I can, I have a very low threshold to send them to you for cardiac MRI to help me figure out that etiology and I think trusting my imaging colleague in situations like this is of the utmost importance. Well, one of the things that was really interesting about this case was that, unfortunately, the search for the etiology happened once the patient was an extremist. And if we think about it, even just a few years ago, we used to believe that devices are completely contraindicated for MRIs. And we now know that we can safely image almost every type of device with MRI in general. And in this particular case, we did a cardiac MRI and and, and we know we can do that safely. But one of the important things to know uh, when you're referring a patient with a defibrillator is that the defibrillator can create a lot of imaging artifacts. So we lose our ability to do a lot of the imaging like cine imaging and and T2 weighted edema imaging and things like that. But we do have tricks uh, up our sleeve to still look for the late gadolinium enhancement using a a technique called wideband imaging. And I think it is important that if you're going to send a a patient with a defibrillator for cardiac MRI that you know that wideband imaging is available. The other thing is, um, you know, this patient came in in VT storm and I can assure you that VT storm inside an MRI scanner is a bad idea. And so as much as we want to help get down to the underlying etiology, we do insist that the patients are stabilized on the floor and not having VT in the last, I don't know, 24, 48 hours at least. It is not fun to try to figure out how to do a code extracting a patient out of an MRI machine. We get you, Amit. That's why we keep the sick patients up with us and we only send them to you after we largely fix them. (laughs) But yeah, I think your point is well taken. And I think certainly, you know, we appreciate in the heart failure world, the ability now to image these patients with devices as we go exploring for underlying causes, hugely helpful to be able to even do serial imaging on a lot of these patients. And that interplay of cardiac MRI and PET on these patients in particular, I think is, is important in terms of serial imaging. And I think as they alluded to during the initial presentation, there's not a lot of good data about how we follow these patients. And I think it's certainly a data gap that is ripe for research where we try to understand as we change the immunosuppression, how do we follow these patients? And right now we're doing that with serial PET imaging, but what should we be looking for? What percentage change is expected? How quickly should we be tapering the immunosuppression when to add a steroid sparing agent, and in which patients, and certainly the frequency of PET scans, for instance, looking for inflammation once we have somebody on immunosuppression, all of these things leave a lot left to be desired. And I think, you know, we develop institutional algorithms and have these discussions between us, understanding and putting together the clinical scenario with what we're seeing on imaging 
But I, again, I think that this is a huge data gap that we have a lot, lot left to learn. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And you can just imagine the cost of just doing the imaging in one of these patients with sarcoidosis, where you're looking at, you know, first they've had, of course, the EKG, then they've had an echo, and then they're going to have a cardiac MRI followed by a PET scan, and the costs start to to add up. And how to follow these patients is quite challenging. In particular, I, I think right now, the best we do is is we, we start the immunosuppressive therapy, and, and maybe we wait three months and, and then repeat the PET scan, hoping that the inflammation is gone. And, and perhaps you repeat it every three to six months until it's gone. And then once it's gone, you have to make a decision about how to look for it coming back. In, at least in my practice, once the inflammation is gone through intensification of the immunosuppressive regimen, and then I've got the patient on a little bit of a stable regimen, I tend to switch over to echo at that time just to keep the cost and the availability and the patient convenience a, a little bit reasonable. But I don't think you can just do a regular echo if you're going to do that. You probably really need to follow the strain values or something to, to look for early signs of that inflammation coming back. How, what's your approach? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective. I think I do similarly to what you said, we're imaging until the PET scan shows no inflammation and I'm comfortable on my immunosuppression regimen, certainly trying to have a steroid sparing regimen given the the side effects of steroids. And then once things are quiescent, uh, year to year following by echo potentially, I don't really see too much of a benefit in what, what the data I've read in serial cardiac MRI, because I don't think we're necessarily going to notice new inflammation just by serial imaging. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I tend to think that if there's a clinical change, as time goes, the thing I'm going to reach for more is a PET scan looking for active inflammation that I could treat by intensifying my immunosuppression regimen. Yeah, that's a, uh, a, a really interesting point about the MRI that you bring up. I, my feeling is if the patient's got a defibrillator, then I think where the primary modality you have available to you is the LGE imaging. That may not help you enough. However, if they don't have a defibrillator, which you know most cardiac sarcoid patients do have a defibrillator, but for some reason they don't, I think you really can do just an MRI. And maybe it's preferred over just an echo because you can look at the, the cine imaging, you can look at strain, you can look at LGE, but the T2 mapping and the T2 weighted imaging really tells you something about active inflammation. And I have to admit, we get a lot of referrals now for non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. And, and we look at it and we wonder, is this, you know, well, a few years ago, I would always say there's LGE present, and this could represent either inflammation, fibrosis, or infiltrative. And I was all very vague about it. But as our T2 techniques have gotten better, I feel more and more confident that if you don't see any increase in your T2 signal, then then you really aren't dealing with active inflammation and active edema or something like that. And, and so I feel comfortable not sending some of those patients on for a PET scan. But uh, when the fellows were, were discussing in the case, they did, you know, they alluded to the fact that there's not enough known about the interplay between these T2 imaging techniques by MRI and FDG uptake in PET. And, and on both sides of the equation, the MRI and the PET side, and I think the fellows nicely brought up a little bit about other things that cause PET abnormalities. Remember, it's not just sarcoid, right? It's inflammation, which we, we know about, but it's also ischemia and, and infection. And those are other things that can cause the PET scan to be positive. 
and 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 the normal myocardium itself, you know, if you don't have the appropriate zero carb diet, you're going to end up with a false positive. Yeah, that's a good point. You also brought up a, a point about the defibrillators in our sarcoid patients, which I think is another fairly controversial topic. To me, you know, I wonder in that particular case, had that patient not already had a defibrillator, and now you found a potentially reversible cause again, that you can treat the inflammation, which we think is probably responsible for the ventricular tachycardia, would we have put in a defibrillator? And I would tend, I would tend to say, and it's somebody like that, again, with a potentially reversible cause, if there's not a lot of scar that you're seeing I mean, on cardiac MRI, that potentially we could get away with something like a life vest as we treat the underlying inflammation and see what happens. And if the arrhythmia is quiet down with treatment with, with immunosuppressive treatment, whether or not we can we can potentially avoid a defibrillator because we've quieted down the cause of the, the ventricular tachycardia. I do notice that a lot of people in different institutions have different thresholds for when they put in a defibrillator. And I think a lot of people would argue, well, at this point, it's also secondary prevention. This person presented in BT storm. Are you going to be able to sleep at night knowing that you didn't put in a, a true defibrillator in somebody that has already shown that tendency to sudden cardiac death? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And, and I, I think with cardiac sarcoid, I, I'd say if when these patients are, are presenting with a heart block, I think there is data to say that if you get them on the right treatment, the heart block will reverse and things are fine. The problem, as we've discussed before with VT, is that even if you are able to get the inflammation gone, there is almost always residual scar tissue left behind. And, and the, the chances that they have a recurrent VT episode sometime down the road is, is pretty high. So I definitely think about like the ejection fraction and the burden of scar and, and how much VT they were having and all those things. But my bias is definitely leans towards just putting in a defibrillator. I might, if the patient was really fighting me on it, and I don't know if I do this if the patient already had VT, but maybe if they didn't have VT yet and they just had kind of the imaging, we know you got sarcoid, but nothing bad has happened to you yet. In those patients, I might think about an EP study to see if you have inducible VT to help decide between putting in a defibrillator or not. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And our colleague, Dr. Tung, uh, and I have this discussion as well frequently in clinic about our threshold to do an EP study or, or just say, bite the bullet and put in a defibrillator. And as you know, Rod Tung often likes to do electrical mapping of these people and actually has been very helpful even diagnostically when we go through and we find somebody with cardiac inflammation by PET that is not in the area that we would normally biopsy and there is no evidence of extra cardiac sarcoid. Like this particular patient that was presented luckily had some evidence of extra cardiac sarcoid, but if they had no extra cardiac sarcoid and the interventricular septum where we biopsy did not show inflammation, what Dr. Tang has often done has been to electrically map the area where there is inflammation potentially in the LV and then biopsy that particular area as well as the area around it to help us make the diagnosis. And certainly if the VT is very inducible in that scenario, then also to go ahead and put in a device. But I think it's really highlighting really the multidisciplinary nature of sarcoid, as you can see, like, you know, not it's not just heart failure, not just imaging, not just EP. It's really everybody working together on each particular scenario to find the right way to treat the patient. 
Yeah, that's that's for sure. I, I like this case for it really highlighted one other thing for me, which was how challenging it is to make the diagnosis of primary cardiac sarcoidosis, which is really what this patient, I mean, yes, they had a lymph node that they were able to access and, and get histology from. But really, as far as I understood from the case, not no other organ involvement was was there. And so this is a case of primary cardiac sarcoidosis. And, and we've kind of studied patients who are presenting with a VT and, and aggressively look for uh, primary cardiac sarcoid in these patients and found that somewhere between 5 and 10% of patients presenting with VT who don't have, you know, another explanation for their VT end up having cardiac sarcoid. So I think thinking about cardiac sarcoid and in, in, in VT, but a, a heart block uh, and a few other clinical scenarios will really be helpful as, as you encounter these patients. Yeah, I think it's what you said. It goes back to that pretest probability and always having a high index of suspicion when you hear somebody in the right clinical scenario to have a low threshold to do imaging studies that might allow us to come up with the underlying diagnosis of sarcoid. And I think I think we're getting there. I think 10 years ago, people were not necessarily thinking about sarcoid as they met these patients. But I see a change even in the the cardiology fellows that we're seeing that they're recognizing more of it. They're thinking about it more often. And that's how we're going to pick it up and and treat these patients. Well, Natasha, that I, as always, I learned a lot from you. That was a lot of fun. And the best best part of this whole thing was that we got to make fun of Mark Belkin and, and Ian Hackett. It's not hard to to do, but it's definitely fun. So uh, I enjoyed the discussion as well. And thanks to the fellows for, for coming up with a very good case and a lot of fodder for discussion. What? Who's George Lucas? Dan! You can what? Oh. Wait. Star Trek. Wait, Indiana Jones. Not Star Trek, Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. I meant Star Wars. Oh, oh wait, wait, like a, wait, wait, like wait, 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 George Lucas. You're right. Okay, I know who he is. Okay, because <laughs> Lucas named after. Shoot, 